Thank you, Zoom, for letting us know that. Uh, we are here with, I thought, Romans 15, but it seems like a wrinkle is coming up from what I've been told. So we'll see what that means. Uh, let's first start with prayer. Christ has risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ has risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ has risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Amen. All right, Reed. Take her away. Okay, well, um, tonight we are picking up where we left off last time, which was at the end of Romans 14, which would normally mean we would go on to start Romans 15, but there is this wrinkle. If you look in St. John Chrysostom's, Chrysostom's text, there are three more verses in his chapter 14. These three verses are the same three verses that end the book of Romans, that is at the end of chapter 16, in probably all of the Bibles that we are likely to be carrying. And if you, uh, and so the doxology, it's a doxology which reads, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all the nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Now there in, uh, you know, I've been taking my text of St. John from the Nicene and Post-Nicene Father Series 1, Volume 11, page 714, um, where the footnote indicates that uh, not only St. John's text, but many other ancient manuscripts and some of the church fathers also have this doxology at the end of chapter 14, but other manuscripts and fathers place it the same place our Bible does at the end of chapter 16. And there are a very few manuscripts that have it repeated. It shows up in both places. Yeah. But since I'm taking St. John Chrysostom as our guide, I thought I would address the, um, the doxology here because some of his comments about it only make sense if it's at the end of 14. So let me share my screen here. And I'm on chapter 16 because that's where the uh, benediction shows up, the doxology. And uh, I want to talk, St. John has a great deal to say about this. And so I thought it would be good to go ahead and talk about his comments at length since he saw a great deal of um, meaning in what he found here. So he says here that St. Paul customarily closes his exhortations with prayers and doxologies, instructing his children now are not only by words, but through prayer, seeking God's assistance. <clears throat> when he says at the beginning of it, him who is able to establish you, St. John takes this to be um, meaning once more, he is addressing the weaker brethren whom we talked about last week in chapter 14, because being established is needful to those who are wavering. St. John has made similar comments about verse four of chapter 14, where he talks about, uh, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, St. John says this means what Christ himself preached. 
So he's saying the doctrines are Christ's and not Paul's or anyone else's. And this message is of great benefit and honor to them that receive it, both because of its content, which is glad tidings, and because of the person who preached it, meaning not Paul, but Christ. And moreover, God is showing favor to Paul's audience by giving them this message, which is a mystery and uh, something that was secret to all who came before. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, where he says, according to the commandment of the everlasting God to, for obedience to faith, he says, the point of this is that our response to this message should be obedience, for this is what faith requires, and not to ask curious questions about why God revealed his mystery only now. So evidently, this was a question he anticipated people asking. It's like, well, if God's revealing it now, why now? Why not some other time? And as is so common for him, St. John says, none of our business. Faith calls us to obey, not to be curious. Uh, the quote is actually, for faith requires obedience and not curiosity. Where he speaks of this being made, being made known to all nations, he says that this is meant for an encouragement to these Roman believers, that they are not the only ones embracing this creed, but the whole world is in fact embracing it, which shows that it's not a man, but God who is their teacher, and not only their teacher, but the one who has confirmed this message. So he says, the way this should actually be read from the beginning is, now to him, that is of power to establish you through Jesus Christ. Um, so St. Paul attributes both the teaching and the confirmation of this to Christ. And in addition, um, St. Paul is ascribing to Jesus Christ the glory that belongs to the Father. Now here I had to look at the footnote again, which says that the uh, that in the Greek, the reading is not to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ. It is to God only wise through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. And so what St. John is reading attributes the glory to Jesus Christ. And as he is often at pains to do, is indicating you know, you know, proper Trinitarian theology that um, St. Paul as readily attributes the glory to Jesus Christ as he does to the Father. I'm about to go into a long quote from St. John here, but are there any questions or comments so far? Is there language <clears throat> that we see in 25 about the the mystery kept secret since the world began i'm trying to remember did that come up earlier in romans at all that idea of the mystery kept secret from the from before the world began i don't recall it showing up in romans i mean i certainly think of it showing up in colossians yes yeah yeah exactly um but, but it makes sense right that it would be that the mystery is all wrapped up in uh, in this context. We probably think about the mystery as like that Jesus was going to come and save us, right? But he, I think 
that's part of what he means, but he means the inclusion of the Gentiles as part mm -hmm. of the mystery. Is right, that, certainly, uh, certainly you see that very strongly in Colossians. Right. So I'm looking at Colossians now to... <laughs> Yeah, it's 126. It's right there in the first. Yeah, because in Colossians 127, right after it talks, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ mm -hmm. in you, the hope of glory. Which is basically another way of saying exactly what he says here. So, Yeah. It makes me wonder... You know, if this is the sort of thing that St. John would look at and say, well, he says it openly in Colossians, but here so as not to, uh, you know, lose his audience, he, he leaves it more implicit that that's right, the point. Right. What about prophetic scriptures? Is that what the, is the, is that a good translation, prophetic scriptures? Um, let me see. I asked that because it doesn't seem like it just means like the prophetic literature as much as it means all of scripture as being prophetic. Obviously being the Old Testament here. St. John's reading was by the scriptures of the prophets. Really? And okay. uh, his comment there well, guess, is this. Oh, go ahead. That is all of Paul's arguments, right? Like he's. When he, as he's making his case, it's all prophets that he's quoting. Right. It's not, he's not quoting Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus. He's that I remember recalling, you know, in the middle of the book, it's mostly Isaiah, Jeremiah, mm -hmm. Psalm, Psalms. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. Makes sense. A lot of the Psalms. And the, the Psalms weren't even the prophets at this time, right? They were among the writings. What's funny? It's funny. Uh, I wonder if the fathers talk about David being a prophet because we, we we talk about David being a king and prophet. Mm -hmm. And but I, I don't know if that's. I, I the more the longer I'm Orthodox and the more I get into these kind of questions that seem kind of esoteric <laughs> or like footnote <laughs> footnote worthy. You know, like I realize after reading Chrysostom, I'm like, well, that's why we do, like it's there. And it's not just because there are some things in orthodoxy that are, are later things that develop or ways, but sometimes a lot of the time, most of the time, it's a really ancient thing. And we just still say it the same way that they like. And part of the reason why we emphasize that particular thing is because they did. Right. So I've known like the three holy youth, you know, they were important growing up, but the fathers love, I was just reading Chrysostom's, um, Letters to St. Olympia, hmm. Job and the Three Holy Youth, a lot about them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so no wonder they show up as much as they do for us. Anyways, mm -hmm. I just, I always love these little condensed doxologies because they're almost always interesting phrases going on that make me go, should I assume what I think I should assume or should I, I don't think I should. Right. Well, and when you see St. John, who will give so much attention to each word, and it's like, no, this doesn't just mean what it seems on the face. This particular choice of word actually has, you know, gives a whole different meaning to what we're up to or a whole different flavor to it. 
our emphasis. Um, just in, me, sorry, I have one more question because I just reread it all again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for, for obedience to the faith, what does that mean? So there's a lot of debate about what it means, the faith. Is that objective or subjective? Do you know what I mean? Like faith as a subjective thing or a faith as an objective content that you have faith? Does Chris well, some talk about well, that at all? I don't think he really addresses the meaning of the faith in that context so much as the okay. word obedience. Uh -huh. Which homily like, is that? This is um, this is homily twenty seven. Seven. All right. And I wanted to mention about the scriptures of the prophets that Saint John's take on that is that the apostle emphasizes that again for the weaker brethren, so that they won't be afraid to leave the law because. The law wishes them to leave the law. And so it's interesting that he's taking, um, you know, the scriptures of the prophets as being equivalent to the law. That is, St. John is. And so, so that again, one more time, Reed, sorry. Well, that, that, St. John reads this comment about the scriptures of the prophets as being the apostles' way. Uh, he says, here again, he is releasing the weak person from fear. For what do you fear? It is lest you depart from the law. The law wishes that you do this. And so, you know, he has no hesitation about speaking of the prophets and the scriptures of the prophets as being equivalent to the law, even though we're not talking about the Pentateuch, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So he takes it that that's what St. Paul means, is that when he's referring to the prophetic scriptures, the scriptures of the prophets, the real point of this is for the weaker brethren, the, the Jewish believers who are having trouble getting away from the law, to give them yet another encouragement to get away from the law. This all makes me want to revisit because they're, if you dabble in the fathers, you'll come across charges of uh, Chrysostom as anti-Semitic because he has a series of homilies called Against the Judaizers. And it makes, and somebody wrote a monograph the past 20 years or so on this topic where they were saying it doesn't really fit into, what I remember, it doesn't fit into when we say anti-Semitic, that doesn't really work for this context. So it makes me, because of all of the way he sees and reads Paul's argument, how that would be operating possibly in the background of those sermons and the kind of rhetoric that he's using. Mm -hmm. Because what you had in his day and age was something similar where you had Christians who had been converts or they just kind of dabble in the synagogue and in the church. They haven't really if I'm remembering correctly what the issue that he's having to face at that time pastorally, where he's, he's saying, you need to like pick where you're going to be <laughs> and stay there. And I could see the way he's been re reading Paul. I mean, if this is how he, he hears Paul, then of course he would be saying that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's right. That he was concerned for you know those who held the Jews in a certain awe and somehow thought there was a weight to their ceremonies and mysteries and whatever that the church didn't have. That somehow an oath that was witnessed by a Jew was binding in a way that it would not be otherwise. And really interesting. Well, there we can. Here's the eight orations. You can read them online. All right. <laughs> there I go. I've answered my own. Now I can read all about his hom eight of them. Oh boy. Well, we always knew our boy John couldn't not keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but that is an interesting thought that maybe the the problems that his own people were facing were weighing on him and caused him to emphasize the um, what the Apostle Paul was saying to bring the Jews away from the law. And maybe St. John is emphasizing this to bring his own people away from, from uh -huh. Judaism. So he reads Paul as a rhetorician as he's being a rhetorician. So he gets to hide behind Paul too. That's right. Just like Paul got to hide behind the way he was talking. So Chrysostom gets to use Paul hiding behind. It's like a, anyways. That's an interesting thought. Oh, I bet it was happening. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, I, I do think it's interesting when there is even in our own day, certainly in circles that I've been close to still a great deal of interest among Christians of a particular stripe to engage themselves in Jewish practices. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is Let's nothing new. Make it up. Yep. Anyway, let me, um, I wanted to read a rather long, again, paraphrased quote from St. John on this passage because I thought it was just beautiful and was worth reading. It says, and St. Paul uses a doxology again from awe at how incomprehensible these mysteries are. For even now that they have appeared, there's no comprehending them by reasonings, but it is by faith we must come to a knowledge of them for no other way suffices. St. Paul well says to the only wise God, I wonder if that addresses some of what you are talking about, Father, that here faith for him is almost a perceptive uh, faculty. It's by faith we come to know. Like Abraham, right? Like his example, the way he was reading Paul, reading Abraham. Mm -hmm. that, that's really stuck to me when we were back, how many, 10 chapters ago or so <laughs> now? Yeah. But yeah, faith sort of as a as a way of apprehending the mysteries. Right. St. Paul well says to the only wise God, for if you reflect on how God brought the nations in and blended them with those who lived well in ancient times, how he saved those who were desperate, how he brought men unworthy of earth up to heaven and brought those who had fallen from this present life into that undying and unchangeable lot, unchanging life and transformed those whom devils trampled down into those able to vie with angels and opened paradise and put a stop to all the old evils and this in a short time and by an easy, short and comprehensive way, then you will learn his wisdom. And when in addition, you see the Gentiles suddenly learning through wisdom, uh, sorry, suddenly learning through Jesus, what neither the angels nor the archangels knew before, it is right to admire God's wisdom and to give him glory. But you remain engrossed, but you, his audience, you, you remain, well, Paul's audience, 
You remain engrossed in little things, still sitting under the shadow. This is not how someone giving glory behaves. For he who has no confidence in God and no trust in the faith does not bear testimony to the grandeur of his doings, but Paul offers up glory in their behalf in order to bring them to the same zeal. Man, Reed, you do a really good job. I found where you were reading that, and you do a very good job of uh, cleaning up the Victorianisms. Oh, thank you. <laughs> or the like the, the old Latin, like that they think in Latin way. You know what I mean? Like, so they, uh, yeah. Well, that's Especially wonderful. Especially to comprehend on hearing it and reading it than me trying to follow you. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad. And he points out, as he so often does, that when he says to the only wise God, that is not praising the Father to the exclusion of the Son, because everything that displays God's wisdom is done by Christ, and not one of them is done without him. So plainly, then, then the Son is equal in wisdom. The point of the word only is to contrast the Son not with the Father, but with all created things. Um, so again, St. John is always very conscious of passages that some people would take wrongly to try to prove misunderstandings of the Trinity. Yeah, he still would have been living with the great shadow of Arianism. Well, and I mean, um, during his lifetime, the, the Second Ecumenical Council took place, right, where they added the language to the creed to affirm the deity of the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's not letting me change chapters here. Okay, here we go. So, finally into chapter 15 proper. Um, would someone be so kind as to read for us the first seven verses, which again is not how this text breaks it, but that's the way St. John does. I'll do that. Thank you. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves, but each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Thank you. Now, probably the theme that St. John sees most heavily emphasized in more or less all of chapter 15 is that of unity. Um, but let me go ahead and take it again a bit at a time. Um, here, St. Uh, Paul, um, returns from his prayer to exhortation, once again addressing the stronger brethren. And we noticed last week that uh, the apostle never used the word stronger, 
But here we do see the word strong, we who are strong for the first time. Um, and he he's affirming them in their position now, both by calling them strong and by using the word we as he sort of lumps them in with himself. Um, but he also seeks to draw them by sympathy, pointing out the infirmities. This says scruples, but St. John's text said infirmities of the weak. Uh, that you know, the very fact that they are infirm should call on our, our sympathy, we who are strong. And what he's going to argue is that this sort of condescension to the, to the weakness of the weak doesn't hurt the strong, but if the strong neglect it, it may be fatal to the weak. So it's like this doesn't cost the strong much to condescend on this point to the, the views of, to the practice of the weak, but if they don't do it, it may be uh, grievously harmful to, to the weak. And he also comments, if you are strong, it is God who made you so. So make God a good return by helping those who are weak and sickly. And we should do this in every matter in which someone may be weak, whether by being given to passions or insolent or suffering from any other failing. Okay, so his point is, okay, if God has made you strong in a certain matter, this is not for you to be annoyed with the people who are weak. It means that you have the strength to help those who are weak. And even if it's someone who's caught in a passion or has trouble with insolence or suffers from any other failing within the Christian faith, we should seek to, uh, the, the, those who are strong in those matters should seek to help those who are weak. So the next question, well, how do you do that? And this gets us to verse two. We show our power, we who are strong, show power properly by using it to please the weak man. So we help him by pleasing him. And not just any pleasing, pleasing that's for his good and building him up. So if you have any sort of strength, whether that means you are rich or you have power, don't use your riches or your strength to please yourself, but the poor and the needy. This is how you gain true glory, not the fleeting glory of this world. And by doing this, you also do a great deal of good service to your to you, to other believers. So St. Paul is commanding every believer, if necessary, to relax his own perfection to set right the weakness of another. So really what, he, what he's saying here, I don't know if we said this last week, is, look, if you're strong, but your brother over here is, um, is weak and is not eating meat because he still feels like he needs to observe the law and not eat pork, well, rather than reproaching him harshly, join him in not eating meat condescend to his weakness and adopt it so as not to give him offense, so as not to crush him. He says, you know, you in the perfection of your faith know that it's not necessary, but go ahead and practice your faith a little less perfectly for the sake of his soul. And he goes on in verse three. He says that what St. Paul is commanding, this pleasing your brother, is a great thing. And so he brings in the example of Christ to confirm that this is the way to go. Uh, in fact, uh, generally, when St. Paul is, is exhorting people to do something that may seem suspicious or difficult, he brings in the example of Christ and shows how he did the same thing. For example, when he exhorts the Corinthians to give alms, he speaks of how the Lord, being rich, became poor for our sake, and he gives other examples. 
And this quote from the Old Testament, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. About this, he says that the Lord had the power not to be reproached and not to suffer, but he neglected his own con concerns in favor of ours. Thus, he didn't merely become a man, but he also received ill treatment and a bad reputa reputation and being thought of as weak, namely the, the insults that were thrown at him on the cross. And the point then of this quote is that those who reproached, the, the, the Jews who had reproached God in the Old Testament reproached his son in the New Testament. And so the reproaches of those who reproached you, the Jews who in the Old Testament were disobedient and, and reproachful, rude to the Father, to God, uh, also reproached the son as he hung on the cross. Verse four speaks of uh, patience and hope. And St. John says, these increase each other. Patience leads to hope and hope leads to patience and the scripture produces them both. In verse five, St. Paul picks up prayer again as his mode of instruction. Um, showing that it's not only the scriptures, but also God himself who gives patience. And here he's calling us uh, not merely to love one another, but to love one another uh, with a great love, that is a love according to Christ Jesus. Um, and it's the nature of love to be this like-mindedness is to have the same mind toward the one you love as you have toward yourself. And so this is the sort of love he's calling us to. Uh, in verse six, St. Paul turns to doxology again, teaching the Roman believers that they need not unity only of words, but also of will. So St. Paul is giving them very, very strong exhortation and encouragement toward unanimity and to being at peace with one another. And so in verse seven, once again, uh, St. Paul puts before us, Christ as our example. He received us and we are to receive one another. And this is something our, our union, our unanimity, is our unity is something that especially glorifies God. And so he says, if you're separated from your brother, even you're not willing to be separated and you're being separated because you're trying to please God. So you're trying to correct your weaker brother by showing him the example of a more perfect faith. He said, keep in mind that you're being reconciled with your brother, even at the cost of condescending to his weakness and practicing your faith less exactly will greatly glorify God. And he quotes the passage from our Lord in his high priestly prayer in John 17. By this, all men shall know that you have sent me if they be one. He sort of paraphrases it. Can so I make a comment about verse six? Yes, please do. Does anyone recognize that language? It's uh, before the... Uh... Our Father in the liturgy, right? Uh, it's before the litany, before the Our Father. Okay. Um, it's right at the end of the anaphora, right after we've done, we silently 
remember, uh, there's a prayer that says, remember, O Lord, the city wherein we dwell, every city and country, and the faithful that dwell therein, dwell therein. Remember, O Lord, them that travel by sea, land, air, sick, suffering, and prison, salvation. Remember, O Lord, them that bear good. So it's, it's, you do the dead, and then you remember the living silently. That's where we start with the Theotokos at the height, and then we work our way down, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then at the end, the priest says, and Grant, I'm using not what we normally use. So I just looked it up because I was like, why do I I know where this is, but I need to look it up. <laughs> Grant that with one mouth or one heart and one mouth, we may glorify him, the most honorable and majestic name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it seems like this is obviously where they grabbed it from. Yeah. And in the context, it makes sense that we are supposed supposed to be patient and comfort to like to our brethren. And we just in the liturgy, the context is remembering all those uh, and then bringing that one mouth, one heart uh, language there. Well, I know so, we follow. Just... Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Reed. I was going to say, and don't we follow it? with that very language, let us love one another, that, that with one heart and one mouth we may confess, uh, that we may dare to, the, to, dare that, to call him so the father and to say. That, that's, uh, okay, so right after that is, and may the mercy of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all. Then you do the, the litany of the Our Father, and then the, right before you do the Our Father, um, you say, and Matt, uh, well, this says, and vouchsafe us, O Master, that with boldness, without condemnation, we may dare to call upon thee, the heavenly God, as Father, to say. The part where it talks about, um, let us love one another, that with one mind we may confess, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's uh, let's see here. That's a little earlier, right? Yes, it is. Oh. It's right before the anaphora. It's right before the creed. Because that's when the priest, uh, I'm not used to saying it anymore because the deacon says it. <laughs> but I did this morning. Um, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my foundation, my refuge. And then I kiss the, the discos and the chalice. And if Father Stephen, if there's another clergy, then we do the kiss of peace at that point. Mm. So, cool. again... That there's a reason why it's let us love one another, the one mind we may confess in the creed, and there's the kiss of peace. It used to be the kiss of peace was everybody, but over time that dropped out, probably because it was on the lips, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> well, thank you, Father. Other thoughts or comments before we go on? Okay, well, let's see. So then... Um, would someone read for us verses 8 through 13? So to 13. Right, 8 through 13. Thank you. Okay. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. 
and again. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, loud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. So St. John says that the apostle here is continuing to explain how Christ did not please himself. And he's also going to argue that, um, that what the, the apostles here are saying is that the Gentiles have a larger debt to God than the Jews do because the Jews do, do have a promise made to the fathers, but the Gentiles have received good from God purely out of his pity and love. So having the larger debt, debt, the Gentiles should be ready to bear with the weak among the Jews. And um, the question about now, what, what does this verse even mean, this verse eight in particular about confirming the promise of, you know, about Jesus Christ? Well, okay, the verse, verse eight. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And it's that last bit, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, that John takes to indicate the greater debt the Gentiles have, because it's not promise they're relying on, but purely the mercy of God. But as far as what verse 8 means, again, I want to read an extended paraphrased quote from St. John. God had made a promise to Abraham, saying, I will give the earth, or Sometimes I think our translations say the land to you and to your seed and in your seed, all nations shall be blessed. But after this, those who were of the seed of Abraham became subject to punishment for the law brought them wrath because of their transgressions and deprived them of the promise made to the fathers. Therefore, the son came and worked with the father in order that these promises might come true and have their proper results. For the son fulfilled the whole law, including circumcision. And by this and by the cross, he freed them from the curse that their transgressions brought, thereby preventing the promise from falling to the ground. When St. Paul calls Christ a minister of the circumcision, he means that by having come and fulfilled the law and been circumcised and born of the seed of Abraham, he undid the curse, stayed the anger of God, and made the recipients of the promise fit for them as being freed from their alienation once for all. Then, to, to prevent these accused persons from saying, why did Christ accept circumcision and keep the whole law if these things are not to continue? He uses their argument to reach the opposite conclusion, for Christ was circumcised and kept the law, not that the law might continue, but that he might put an end to it and free you from its curse and set you entirely at liberty from the dominion of that law. For he fulfilled the law because you transgressed it. Not that you might now fulfill it, but that he might confirm to you the promises made to the fathers, promises that the law had suspended by showing you to be an offender and unworthy, uh, an offender and unworthy of the inheritance. And so you too are saved by grace since you had been cast off. Do not then argue nor perversely cling to the law at this unsuitable time, since it would have excluded you from the promise unless Christ had suffered so many things for you. And he suffered these things, not because you were deserving of salvation, but that God might be true.
And I thought that was a very striking passage because to my ear, it summed up a great deal of what St. Paul has said in the book of Romans. He brings up an argument that we haven't heard St. Paul express anywhere, but the idea that, well, if Christ kept the law and was circumcised, doesn't that mean everyone who follows him should too? And again, folks who think that way, I believe. But, um, and his point is, no, it means exactly the opposite. He was doing those things to rescue those who had failed at them from losing the promise that had been made to them. And so he wasn't trying to confirm the law in its continuation, but he was making an end of it by fulfilling it so that now you could receive the promise that had been made so that God might be true in, in, you know, in giving the promise, in fulfilling the promise he had made. Anyway, any thoughts before we go on? Okay, so picking up in verse nine. Oh, sorry, Father, go ahead. Rock on. Okay. <laughs> so in verse nine, uh, again, the Jews at least had the promise of God, even if they promised, uh, if they proved worthy of the promises. Gentiles were saved purely from God's love toward man. Of course, the promises would not have done the Jews any good either, apart from the work of Christ. But St. Paul doesn't mention that because his point here is to prevent the Gentiles from rising up against their Jewish brethren. So he emphasizes instead the worst position that the Gentiles were in so that they might consider themselves all the more bound to glorify God. And a short quote here, and it is a glory to God that they be blended together, be united, praise with one mind, bear the weaker and not neglect the member who is broken off. And then St. Paul gives a number of testimonies from the Old Testament showing that the Jews were supposed to blend themselves with the Gentiles. And Erica read these for us, but that's what they're all saying. It's essentially, if you Jews are thinking this is weird that the Gentiles should be united, united with you, your scriptures were saying this all along. So don't make a fuss anymore. So finally then in verse 13, St. Paul turns to prayer again. God wants us to abandon our heartless toward, heartlessness toward one another and not to be cast down by temptations. Um, this will result by our not merely having hope, but abounding in hope. And the source of hope is the Holy Spirit. And yet we have to contribute our part as well, which is the believing and doing the good works that come of faith, because this draws the spirit. And without the spirit, we do good works. So good works draw the spirit, the spirit provokes good works, they build each other up. They, and if, if you lose one of them, you lose both of them. So that's what he sees there in verse 13. So that sort of quickly gets us through that section. Any comments before we go on? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Yeah, we're having to move quickly tonight. Yeah. You want me to read? <laughs> yes, please. 14 to 21? Yeah, that'd be good. 
Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I can hear St. John going, see what he's doing here? Nevertheless, <laughs> brethren, I've written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I may, might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Thank you, Father. Now, a couple of observations here. Um, St. John comments several times about how the apostle is picking up on themes that he mentioned in his kind of warm opening in chapter one. And there are many passages here that are parallel to something you could find in the first chapter of Romans, both in words and in tone. Um, and so he, he really sees him picking up on, on that sort of uh, you know, warm encouragement, but also a great deal about St. Paul presenting himself doing the work of ministry, doing the priestly duty in all that he does. Um, so in verse 14, St. Paul, having spoken somewhat harshly to the Romans, now chooses kind words, praising them even more than he did at the beginning of the letter, because at the beginning he says, I thank, I thank God that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. But here he says, oh, I'm confident that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admo admonish one another. Um, so in particular, having told them to receive the weaker and not to neglect them or to destroy the work of God, he now makes it clear that he doesn't imagine them to be cruel or to hate their brothers, quite the contrary. As he says, I know you're full of goodness. It's kind of like, well, of course you're going to do these things because, you know, you're not the kind of people who really need the sort of correction you might think I was giving you. Um, and, um, and he uses this very intense language of full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. Um, in verse 15, he continues in this to approach them rather humbly, saying uh, that he's confessing that he's been sort of bold, but he starts to pull back on that. Yes, he, 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 was, he was bold, he knows, but it was only on some points. And it wasn't really as though they didn't already know them. It was just as a reminder. And evidently the Greek word is a very gentle one. It's kind of like, kind of bringing this to mind again. Um, because St. John comments on the actual word that the apostle uses. Um, and he says that St. Paul often writes this way in his letters. In Hebrews, he talks about, I am persuaded of better things of you uh, for you and to the corinthians he says now i praise you about so and so that you remembered and to the galatians he says i have confidence in you and later in romans 16 he'll say for your obedience has become known to all 
And so this is a way that the Apostle Paul often writes um, to make it, what he's saying, you know, warmer and more encouraging and palatable to his hearers. And he makes his humility even greater as he uh, says there that this has all been because of the grace that has been given to him, that it's not simply he decided to be bold with them, but it's because of the grace that God has given him. So in verse 16, St. Paul continues to present himself humbly, justifying his boldness by being a minister or a priest who is offering the Gentiles as a sacrifice to God. It took me a while to read through that and realize, oh, that's really what he's saying. He's a priest, and the sacrifice he's offering is the Gentiles. And he's anxious, as any priest should be, that the sacrifice should be without blemish. And since he holds this office by God's appointment and not by personal choice, you know, he's, it's not that he's chosen for himself to do this. And so St. John says something like his preaching and his teaching is a priesthood and the gospel is his knife. This is how he makes the offering is with the gospel. So what does it take for the offering to be acceptable? It will be acceptable if the souls whom he is teaching are accepted. How does this happen? And here's another quote. It happens in the Holy Spirit. For we need not only faith, but also a spiritual way of life that we may keep the spirit who has given, who was given to us once for all. For it is not wood and fire, nor altar and knife, but that spirit that is all in us. For this reason, I use all means to prevent that fire from being extinguished. Um, which made me think a bit of, um, is it Saint um, Sophroni, um, who, you know, uh, acquire the Holy Spirit and, uh, and a thousand souls around you will be saved? Seraphim. Seraphim, thank you. Um, but but That's here why the they Saint... pay me the big bucks, Reed. <laughs> and we appreciate Memorizing it. random things. <laughs> And, um, but that, um, you know, that, but here St. Saint John is talking about keeping the spirit who was giving us once for all, you know, sort of, again, this, this paradox. Spirit's been given once for all, and yet we always want to be about keeping him. Um, but anyway, St. John goes on here and says that uh, the apostle doesn't speak merely of offering the Romans to God, but the Gentiles, which again promotes a little humility that the Romans are not anyone special, but they're just one among many who are all called the Gentiles. Um, in verse 17, let's see, right, we're still going. In verse 17, St. Paul has humbled himself, and so now he begins to speak of the glory of his ministry, lest any of the Romans start to hold him in contempt. Yet, um, it's not his glory, but it is glory in Jesus Christ and in the grace of God. Uh, verses 18 and 19, again, Paul speaks of the glory of his ministry. And St. John says he, that Paul does not have the awesome garments, priestly garments and the accoutrements of the Jewish high priest. What he has instead of these is a great abundance 
of mighty signs and wonders. I think he says they came down as thick as snow. And as his fruit, he has believing Gentiles in a huge, huge swath of the Roman world and even among the barbarians. So, you know, if you want to say what sort of a ministry has he had, you can speak of endless miracles, endless wonders, and endless people who now believe because of his ministry and where the church is established. And yet again, he doesn't establish, uh, doesn't attribute any of this to himself, but to Christ and to the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 20, uh, St. Paul is not at all vain. He's not trying to win uh, glory for what he does where someone else is preached. Uh, he's not writing to the Romans seeking glory or honor from them, but he's fulfilling his ministry, carrying out his priestly duty, and he is great, de greatly desirous of their salvation. And finally, verse 21, uh, St. John simply comments that the apostle runs to where the labor is more, where the toil is greater. So then could I ask one of you to read from 30, from 22 through the end, please. Are you going to do it, Erica? I can. <laughs> For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to, the, to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed, them, have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the peace of God be with you all. Amen. Thank you. Uh, let me just mention, because it passed in front of my eyes there in verse 26, where it talks about those from Macedonia and Achaia. And if I remember correctly, more or less, um, Macedonia is the, the northern part of what we think of today as Greece, and Achaia is the southern part. So if that's not exactly right, these are both parts of Greece, because St. John's going to talk about uh, Corinth and those in Corinth, uh, the, the Corinthians, and that's when he does that, he's talking about those in Achaia, I believe. Better so watch anyway. out. This is still a contemporary issue. <laughs> I'm serious. Macedonia and Greece. 
there's still a lot of like high political problems right now yeah, about where, where is what is Macedonia. Anyways, <laughs> well, if, if anyone listening to this recording is, is inclined to take issue with anything I've just said, I plead ignorance. I'm trying to give a general idea for the oh. sake of <laughs> Macedonia. You better watch out. <laughs> <laughs> so, in any case, um, verse 22 for this reason, I've been much hindered coming to you. And um, of course, St. Paul said the very same thing in chapter one. Um, and uh, so verse 23, he's encouraging them to humility because why is he finally coming? Well, he sort of doesn't have anything more to do anywhere else. Um, and yet he says, but I do have a great desire to see you. So it's like he doesn't want to seem to be holding them in contempt, but he doesn't want them to get all puffed up either. And I do wonder whether this explains why he hasn't come in the past. It's just, he says, you know, I prayed to be able to come to you, but I've never been able to back in chapter one. And it's like, well, why? Well, because he always had work to do somewhere else. Maybe it's really that simple. Um, verse 24, again, he's both humbling and encouraging them, uh, touching both on uh, his desire to see them, but also on their being along the way going to Spain where he wants to go. In verses 25 through 27, he picks up on some topics that, of course, we saw in Acts, and uh, you know you would see some of it in Corinthians as well. But uh, St. John sees the apostle here, first of all, explaining why there's going to be a further delay because he's going to Jerusalem instead of going directly to Rome. Um, and of course, we know that delay stretched out some years. But also that St that the apostle is exhorting the Roman believers to almsgiving. Um, and he's doing it a little bit indirectly because if he had just mentioned the example of the Corinthians and Macedonians, you know, sort of like saying, well, look at how generous they are. You should do that too. Uh, it might've seemed like he was insulting them. So instead he brings them in by way of explaining what he's doing and then instructing them on a sort of a point of doctrine, namely that the Gentiles have an obligation to share with the Jewish believers in need. Um, and thus he gets a chance to talk about almsgiving uh, without somehow making the, the Roman believers feel insulted. And you notice here he describes it not as alms, but as a contribution so that he doesn't seem to be speaking poorly of those who are going to receive it. So it's not alms for the poor, but a contribution. And he describes them as, as poor saints, uh, which highlights both their need and their virtue. And he calls this gift uh, a ministering, which is evidently the word you would use for those who bring tribute to a king. Um, I guess emphasizing that it's you know, the one you're giving this to is, is in honor. You're honoring this person by your gift. It's your honor to, to give it. Um, and he speaks of their spiritual things, but not your carnal things, because he takes it that the carnal things like money are the common possession, the common property of all. They don't really belong just to those who possess it. 
in verse 28, he speaks of um, feeling this fruit. And again, St. John notes that he doesn't call it alms, he calls it fruit. And it's as though he's coming to place it in a royal treasury, showing that those who are giving this are actually enriching themselves. It is those the one, they who benefit from the giving. In verse 29, he says that this word blessing, where he talks about I'll come in the fullness of blessing, uh, sometimes blessing is used as a word for alms. But here St. John takes it to mean all good things, as if he had said, as if the apostle were saying, I know that when I come, I shall find you with the honor and freshness of all good deeds about you and worthy of countless praises in the gospel. <clears throat> so essentially, by praising them in advance for all these good things that the Romans, Roman believers are going to be doing in their practice of almsgiving and other good deeds, he's exhorting them to be sure that they really do it. And yet not seeming to exhort them like, oh, maybe you're going to miss out, but in a very acceptable way saying, well, obviously you're going to do this and I'm just looking forward to being able to celebrate it with you. And again, St. John notes that the apostle often exhorts people to good deeds this way. He picks up in verse 30, there's a mention of the, the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So the Son and the Spirit without a mention of the Father. And he says, so again, those who sometimes see the Father without either Son or Spirit or the Father and the Son without the Spirit have no grounds to think that that means that somehow the Son is less than the Father or the Spirit less than the Father and the Son. In verse 31, he's seeking prayers for deliverance from those in Judea. And what St. John sees in this is something very similar to uh, what our Lord says in the Lord's Prayer, where he says, lead us not into temptation. So Paul is seeking prayers for his deliverance. And his point here is to show that the believers in Judea are faced with terrible enemies, one who are as, as vicious and ferocious as wolves, and that, um, you know, they're, they're so ferocious that the apostle himself is asking prayers for deliverance, and so his point then is to emphasize that the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem are facing not only a famine, but are surrounded by these enemies, and so they have a true need for help from the outside. And again, he emphasizes their dignity, that they would pray that it would be acceptable to the saints, uh, suggesting that this service could all be done in a way that would not be acceptable to those, and so he's to, to those who receive it. And so he's really um, reflecting their dignity in the way he speaks about them here. Finally, in verse 32, he wants to come to them with joy by the will of God, just as in chapter one, he spoke of uh, praying that by the will of God, he might be able to come. And this is why he's asking for deliverance and an acceptable service in Jerusalem. He's going to come to them in Rome, not as a teacher, not to give them a lesson, but to be refreshed together with them, uh, naming them as sharers in his struggles and labors. And finally, verse 33, he closes with yet another prayer. And having rushed through that at breakneck speed, let me see if any of you would like to add comments or questions or anything else.
all the comments that come into my head are things that we've said over again. Just being able to read Paul as a rhetorician and as a pastor really helps thinking about why he talks the way he does, mm -hmm. which seems kind of obvious after you realize it, but. Well, it seems obvious once you realize it, but at the same time, I'm so conscious of, it's like, oh, okay, so there's a lot more behind what he's doing and without a guide, I will never understand it. Right. Because I don't have any of that training. Right. You mean you don't, you weren't trained in fourth century Greek rhetoric? I wasn't even trained in 20th or 21st century uh, American rhetoric. We have rhetoric? <laughs> well, well, I you think know, that's I, only I, on uh, social media comment sections. <laughs> oh, that means we don't. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm, I'm very conscious of this because. Um, you know, as, as a mathematician, having taught for many years at liberal arts colleges or departments, I'm very conscious of the traditional seven liberal arts and that, in fact, the majority of them were mathematical. They are not the humanities, but, you know, arithmetic, meaning sort of number theory and geometry and even, um, you know, m music and astronomy were primarily mathematical. They weren't really like performance degrees in music. Um, and, and so I know studying mathematics and teaching mathematics, I'm doing something very much in the line of what the liberal arts traditionally meant, but I'm very conscious of those parts of the liberal arts that I remain quite deficient in, and probably the most of those is rhetoric. And so, you know, I always feel like each of this stuff, though, that's part of the problem. Even if you do liberal arts, you don't actually, you don't actually do any of the liberal arts as they were. Right. But I know English departments typically do still offer at least somewhere a course in rhetoric. And I feel like yeah, but you have to be an English, like student, <laughs> English studies, English major. But nowhere else, they, they don't really talk about it. It's kind of lost. It's been lost. I didn't even really realize what I was missing until probably a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Part of that is just studying the fathers. Have you had any chance to remedy that more directly, actually to study the techniques of rhetoric? You hear my homilies? No. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned lots of good things that I don't put into practice. You know, I, I wasn't. <laughs> I think that's called being a hearer of the word, not a doer of the word. And... <laughs> Hi. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've read, I mean, I have some books and articles and things. There's stuff that you can read. I, the one book that I wish, um, it was it was in uh, is in French that I wish that was in English that does a lot of explaining what was going on because I would see it always in the literature in the footnotes I'm like well I don't speak I, you know I guess I could get a French dictionary out and try to figure <laughs> it out but so there's a few other resources and things you can read I have on my shelf at home oh I think I got it at the used bookstore at some point like 
rhetoric in antiquity or something like that. Let me... And it was published in French originally. Yeah, Laurent Pernot or Pernot. <laughs> I'm sure it's Pernot, but it was originally rhetoric in antiquity and it goes through and goes, you know, all of how rhetoric worked the different sophistic revolution, you know, sophists and Athenians, and then how the Greeks and how the Romans did it. And then second sophistic, which is where I believe, if I remember correctly, where Chrysostom falls. Mm. And then you could also, of course, read Cicero and Quintilian, like all the, the rhetoricians. Yes. So you can read it if you want to. Well, yeah, I would love to. I just, I mean, sometimes it strikes me. I've spent, you know, 33 years, you know, teaching classes, mathematics, and it's like, and I've never actually studied rhetoric. I haven't read the first thing about it. And it's like, that seems a little silly or neglectful or something. And especially when you consider how important a field it was for so much of history. Yeah. I mean, it was fundamental. Mm -hmm. I share memes with you guys, and that's my rhetoric. That's the problem. We don't create people in order to, we've kind of lost the idea that you can, or that you even should try to learn how to persuade people and do it in an artful, thoughtful fashion. We, we just don't really think like that anymore. Well, and I think in the modern world, rhetoric in some sense has been more and more reduced to, you know, to sheer power. Yep. And we, I mean, the, shown by the fact that if you hear somebody say rhetoric, you think typically that that means they mean something negative, <laughs> that they mean sophistry, right? Well, and I read, I think it was in, uh, the beauty of the infinite, David Bentley Hart said some people have taken as a definition of postmodernism the triumph of rhetoric over dialectic. And then, of course, that's so much of what he writes about is those who want to say rhetoric is all about power. Yep. Oh, that's late modern stuff, postmodernity stuff. There, yeah. We could go in circles about that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of it's just to say that, you know, with John Chrysostom being so dear to me, I feel a little neglectful that I've never learned anything about rhetoric. Yeah. Well, anything else that we should discuss? Next Not week is me. the last week. Yep, next week yeah. we'll learn about all sorts of good folks. Great. I will, uh, I think this will probably be, we probably won't do another class for maybe until the fall or so, because I don't beat you guys, but I'm ready for a break. <laughs> yep, I could use one too. I'm sure. Uh, and we got to figure out the thing going forward, since COVID was the big shakeup about how we're going to do stuff going forward. I don't know about how what time is best so we'll see i like whether it might make more sense to return to the old 
practice of having a class right after Wednesday Vespers? Yeah, I just don't know what exactly that would be right now. Because it was before kind of catechesis and I don't know if I can actually get most of the catechumens regularly there on Wednesday evenings. So I don't know if that's really, yeah, we'll see. Some of these things uh, we're recording, so I'm not going to say anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should turn off the recording. <laughs> I should do that in any case, I guess.